Today's guests are another mother and son duo, and this is the first time I have hosted a podcast across three different continents. Lois and Nicholas Litchford's story started in Australia and then moved to the US and finally settled in the UK. Nicholas is an Oxford graduate and his mother Lois is the author of the book Reversed, a memoir. The book details Nicholas's dyslexic journey from a mother's perspective, the challenges they both faced, but ultimately Nicholas's amazing successes. This is a great podcast for parents and fellow dyslexics. It shines a light on some of the hidden mental health struggles that we can all face and a mother's determination to never, ever give up. I hope you enjoy this podcast. So thank you both for coming on the show today. I'm really excited because this is the first time I've interviewed two people in different parts of the world. Nicholas from England and then Lois, who is in America, and then I'm in Australia, as you both know, in Melbourne. Thank you, Shay. It's delightful to be here. Thank you. You too. So Nicholas and Lois, you have had such a fascinating story reading um, some articles online about you both. And Lois, you wrote a book called Reversed, a memoir talking about your experiences as a parent, um, about Nicholas's journey through three different levels of education in three different countries from Australia through to the US and then the UK. Can you talk to us a little bit about both of you about your experiences in Australia and what led you over to the US? Our family's Australian and uh, my husband's a professor and he studied in Brisbane and then ended up teaching in Brisbane. So our boys went to uh, the local um, high, um, um, primary school. I'm middling my, my names up, whether it's primary or elementary, but it was a local primary school. And our eldest son, you know, was very articulate and quick and incredibly fast with language. And then, then we had Nicholas. And it took me a long time to acknowledge what had happened, but Nicholas had ear infections from 8 to 18 months. So that actually impacts brain development and it impacts schooling significantly because you're not hearing the language well. Then that's one component. Um, so Nicholas went to school in 1994 and he failed. He'd been to preschool and preschool was fine and kindergarten was fine. But grade one was just a total disaster and he uh, bit his fingernails every day. He wet his pants. So it was really quite disastrous. And so, Nicholas, how does that make you feel listening to your mum's um, memories of your early years of primary school? Uh, to be honest, I don't really have many memories of uh, the earliest years of, of school. Um, I can remember not really liking grade one and the teacher being rather mean and that's about it. Um, so I can't really remember much more than that, to be honest. Does it um, make you feel uh, distressed hearing your mum talk about how your first year at school was so challenging? Not really. It's like, it's like just a different person. It's it's just a different uh, part of my life. So uh, yeah, it's just like that happened. Just it's like that just happened to someone else. It's not. No, it doesn't really disturb me at all. No, I haven't. Uh, I haven't read the book um, because uh, that could bring back memories that uh, might not be very pleasant for me. But um, but hearing Mum talk about that doesn't really like bother me. 
And so did you, how, um, how long were you in Australia before you moved over to the US? I moved to the US when I was 11, but we'd been to the US, we'd lived there twice before for a period of uh, three and six months. And then we'd also moved to the UK in 95 for six months. So we'd, I'd lived outside of Australia for periods of time before then. Um, yeah. So most of your primary school years were in Australia then? Yes. Yep. Yeah. From I think one from like up until fifth grade. Yeah. And so I think we're similar age. I think I started grade prep in 83 if I've got my maths right, around then, anyway. <laughs> um, and I think my dyslexia didn't start to show till grade two. All right. Mm. But again, nobody picked it up because I think um, in the 80s it wasn't something, or even possibly the 90s, wasn't something that was really recognised in Australia at the time. Well, Nicholas's um, disability was really so um, significant, is what separated him from the rest of the class immediately in grade one and then the testing was done at the end of 1995 and that was really horrific and it really makes me question the value of testing because it showed Nicholas had no strengths that he could read 10 words he had no spatial awareness and and then this lady said to me your son has a low IQ. In fact, he's just above intellectually impaired. That testing could have so easily impacted so many things. And what Nicholas said was, you know, we went to England in 1995 for six months and I taught Nicholas because I wanted to him to, to work with him in a one-to-one. -one. And I took these books, Success for All, with me to help me. And they were a failure. And what happened then was I was required to really stop and rethink and say, well, that's not working. What else do I have to do? And that's where the transformation occurred. You know, you throw away what he can't do. He can't do the letters and sounds. He's got no memory for words. Yes, that's right. So let's start doing something entirely different. And that's when I started to write poetry. And the poetry gave a context for the words. It gave the rhymes, it gave the sounds, it gave us illustrations, it gave us an understanding of language. And he just loved it. He ate it up. And it wasn't memory for words, memory for isolated words that caused the problem and the letters and the sounds, but the poetry. And then I did explicit phonics instruction through a series of books called uh, Hear It, See It, Say It, Do It by Mary Atkinson. And that changed my world and his world. So we, the, both those things happened outside of Australia and really impacted both of us. Nicholas, did you want to say something about England? Um, yeah, I can remember quite a bit from England. I remember, um, I remember the poems that mum wrote. Um, there are quite a lot of poems. Um, one was about Captain Cook sailing around the world. <clears throat> and filling um, in the gap uh, of uh, the, the, the missing land of Australia <clears throat> in 1770. I remember um, illustrating the poems with, with various pictures and images and just reciting them. I remember running down the hill to 
St. Nicholas's Church, which is a thousand-year-old church about just in the next town over from where I'm living now, actually. I remember with my grandmother, I remember um, going to the British Museum and looking at the maps. Well, actually, it's the British Library and looking at the maps that, uh, that Cook had written. I remember... And I remember the books that we'd read at that time. I think things like, I wish I'd sailed around the world with Captain Cook. I wish I discovered Kutentaman's tomb with Howard Carter. Um, all those sort of books. I remember that quite vividly. And um, yeah, that was a really fun time. It's interesting you talk about phonics because there's a big shift in Australia right now about bringing phonics in as a standard Yes. Uh, well, it should be for all children to learn how to spell and read. Yes. Um, yes. But there's a, yeah, a big raging debate at the moment around phonics. It, it's very interesting because I see, I see the words explicit phonics and I don't quite know what they mean. Because with the books, the here at see it, say it, do it, Nicholas did the digraphs, T-H-S-H and C-H with a short vowel. And it took him eight weeks to learn that particular group of words. And the next set of, of words he did were the consonant blends, the PL, the PR, the SL, the SR, the ST, all of those. And that also took another eight weeks. And normally phonics is not taught as explicitly as that. But that was the level that Nicholas needed. And it, it was transformative to watch him take it in and you can hear it now the div the contrast between grade one and grade two when we were in England about what he remembers and it's fascinating to me that you know he was really and truly engaged in learning in that day and that was the transformation and it's when we went back to Australia uh, in 1996 and I saw the school diagnostician again you know He's happy in school. He had an absolutely wonderful second grade teacher. He repeated second grade and she was fantastic. But I went to the diagnostician and I said, look, Nicholas has just had such a wonderful time. And, you know, he asked to see Captain Cook's original maps. I knew that didn't come from a child with a low IQ. The school diagnostician stood up and said, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone back. And then I said, well, you know, this, these things have happened. And then she said, well, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. And that wow. still makes me something to say in a civilised voice because it still makes me upset. Yeah, I can imagine. And that was, that was a real clue for me. But then, see, you have this contrast between the testing that happened at the end of 1994 where they're saying he can't do anything and then you've got this child who's doing dramatic things. What Nicholas did with mapping blew my mind. His engagement in the learning was just phenomenal. So, did you see the differences in each country around how they taught and their attitudes towards Nicholas being dyslexic? No, because I was teaching Nicholas at home. Okay. I was totally out of school. And that was done deliberately because I asked Nicholas, do you want to go to school in England? And you could just see his, the blood just literally dropped from his face. 
And so he was terrified of going to another place where he would not understand the teachers. He would have to learn a new routine and he was just terrified. So he didn't even attempt to go to the school once I saw that. That was just too hard. Were you, Nicholas, homeschooled through secondary school as well or was it just primary school? Just no, in it's been just in the six months that I went to the UK. Okay. And then you came back to Australia and went back into school. Yeah. 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 And so after that, you know, and that, that um, comment by the diagnostician was the one that made me say, I've got to do some more work with him. And he went back into school and the classroom teachers at our school were absolutely phenomenal from grade two on. And Nicholas ended up loving school. I worked at home with him a little bit, but he went to school and learnt mostly in school. But that six months was the transforming component of his life. So, yeah, I remember liking yes. grade three and four. I thought the teachers there were very uh, powerful. We can say her name. We can say their names. Mrs. Raspaskoff <laughs> absolutely loved. And Mrs. Hinksman, another teacher he loved. Mm. And he <clears throat> in, in those classes. That's great to hear. I was doing a podcast the other day and the person talking was talking about how, um, how much traumatised they were from school and kept repeating the teacher's name and said they really had an effect on you. And he stopped and said, yeah, actually, I think they did. And this was going back, you know, 40 or 50 years since he's been at that school. Yes. So it's, in, it's nice to hear some... Um, you're remembering teachers' names for a positive reason. Yes. Well, you know, this is what I find fascinating with Nicholas's story. We needed to be removed from the school system and totally upend the education and say, let's change everything to impact him and find his strength along with teaching coding, along with teaching sight words to have him grow. And then once we got that, then he could make sense of the classroom. And that was a critical component of the story. And that's why I, you know, I really wrote the book. And that, because of Nicholas, I became a reading specialist. And so with secondary school, what was that like for you, Nicholas? Um, secondary school in the US. Mm. We went to the um, US. This was uh, 11. Yeah, I moved to the US in 1999. Um, it was very different. It was, it was very like, uh, they, I felt like they really encouraged more reading and they, and, uh, the reading component was, uh, very much like encouraged, um, and almost uh, like added, uh, there was a, like a competitive, um, element to it or, or um, uh, and uh, like uh, a way of testing that um, allowed you to gain points, and so there was that incentive to to gain points. And although I I wasn't really interested in the points or the prizes that came with them, but um, I felt somehow that really got me interested in reading through the uh, accelerated reader program that they had at at uh, the school. Um, yeah. I also did a lot with Connects. I I built um, between grades four and five in the US. I built um, a lot of structures, and that was fun because well, they just uh, like it just 
just uh, built on my spatial awareness skills is putting putting structures together and um, yeah, I felt that was that was a really fun time. And so, did you did your dyslexia impact you when you were in secondary school, or did you have strategies in place then to manage it? Oh, I think like dyslexia has affected me at every stage in my life. Just finding ways and adapting ways to uh, get around the struggles and using using the dyslexia I have to my advantage. You could say it's not necessarily ways of like managing it into into uh, fitting in society. It's I would say it's more of a way of using the dyslexia that I have uh, to achieving the goals and ambitions that I've set. So yeah, you just need to modify your goals and and um, and find out how you could use your strengths and to to your benefit. Yeah, there's a big. So it's not I wouldn't say it's necessarily like changing yourself to fit in with society. It's more just viewing yourself as a separate entity and separate like um just just being different and i don't think there's anything wrong with it no and there's a big movement at the moment particularly coming out of the uk around um dyslexia being gift or a superpower which yeah. i'm not sure about because i mean i'm extremely lucky nicholas you're extremely lucky we've had parents and mums yes that have um, stood by us. And like my mum's edited all my work and my listeners know all I ever do is talk about my mum and how amazing she is and what she's done for me and my family and how I wouldn't yes. be here without them. But it's yes. the people we come across that don't have that support. Yes. That um, I think, you know, whether they think that's a superpower for them yes. or, you know, is it a manageable difference or not. Yes. I totally agree with you totally yeah I, I can't i can't argue with that it's like i've been very privileged in the role that i and the support that i've had um <clears throat> particularly through mum um with writing all those poems and and that was uh that, that was a really impactful period in my life um and sadly the reality is that many people do not have that support no, we're coming across more and more, particularly young people and adults that haven't been diagnosed, have been diagnosed later in life. But also yeah. we're starting to do some work um, with the corrections and seeing the significant amount of people that end up in jail that have yes. um, a learning disability is really quite alarming. Yes, um, yes. it is. Yeah. It is yeah. alarming. I think privilege is the right word. Very privileged to have had the type of family network and support. Because you ended up going to Oxford University, which is an amazing achievement. <laughs> what Thank did you, you study um, at Oxford? I uh, read for a DPhil in mathematics. Um, uh, it took me four years, which is a pretty standard length, and that was after completing uh, an undergraduate in mathematics and mechanical engineering at the University of Tasmania. And uh, yeah, I've also I've also branched out into health economics through a bit of a um, after my DPhil, which is a strange thing to do, but it's good fun. Oh, that's my area. Well, health, anyway. That's where, I, where I've spent most of my life working in health. But it's interesting you say Tasmanian University, going off on a side tangent, because we interviewed um, the Vice-Chancellor, who's now uh, the Vice-Chancellor of Tasmanian University, Rufus Black, who's dyslexic. And so we did a podcast. I did a podcast with him right. last year. 
Yeah. So if you have time to listen to it, his story is fascinating as well. Um, oh, really? Sure. So Tasmania is starting to lead the way in a number of different areas, which is great to see. Yeah, it is. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I can't say I was blessed with any mathematical skills. <laughs> it's interesting speaking to some dyslexic people that um, people have dyslexia that their maths is really, really strong or it's really, really bad and I fall into the really, really bad category. <laughs> so is mine. Oh, gosh, I'm trying to do my maths for my PhD at the moment. Tell you what, it's really all the statistics just, oh, it's like a different language for me. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> What's yes. your PhD in? Uh, it's in dyslexia. Um, looking at the social emotional well-being of young people and adults was the uh, first. Public health. Yeah, public health uh, with the speech because my I originally trained as a speech pathologist. Are you doing like a cohort study or like some sort of? I'm I'm, I'm just curious. Sorry. No, that's all right. Um, the first component was a survey across the country. So we've just kept it within Australia at the moment and we used an evidence-based um, standardised assessment tool from the UK actually. On oh, like, like, a, like a cross-sectional study. Yeah. And okay. so um, that was the first component. I'm just writing my papers now for publication for that. And the second part is interviewing people in the workplace. So dyslexic people and their experiences, but also people working in HR or that have managed people with dyslexia. So we can get both sides of the story so then we can develop the right resources and tools for people okay Which that's we, really exciting wow. yeah it's exciting because it hasn't nothing like this has come out of australia and we really wanted to start building that evidence base to support um yeah. adults in particular so you're working on the you're working in the health department the public health department not through education that's correct public health okay wow mm. that, that's really exciting wow yeah, it is. It's a lot of work. <laughs> what was your experience like going to Oxford? Because um, living in the UK myself for a period of time, there's um, different levels of expectations. I, and uh, where did you live in the UK? Uh, so uh, in Hampshire for a little while and then down in Cornwall, right at the bottom. Okay. St. Ives. But we had gone up to, um, oh gosh, the... Durham University and hung out there for a little bit and it was really interesting to listen to how people spoke around university yeah. back then so did you feel self-conscious going into Oxford knowing that you had dyslexia or it didn't impact you at all uh the dyslexia so Oxford was a bit of an odd period of my life um it's it's a strange place because it's not really like any other place in the world and and it's just it's just its own different little little thing. I did I did experience a lot of um, depression at that over that time, and that was a very difficult period of my life. I didn't really manage this uh, like the dyslexia and 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 the workload and and um, the tasks very well, and all the stress. I didn't I didn't really manage, and all the uh, just like mental health in, in that period, I think, went out the window um, for me. So that was a very difficult period of my life, actually. It wasn't so much like my dyslexia was causing this. It's just I don't really, like, see myself as, like, like this is me and this and, like, my dyslexia is another part. It's just sort of like I just see it as all one sort of 
component as um, as what I am. Um, and I did feel very self-conscious. Um, they call it here that it has a name called imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. where um, you're just surrounded by all these really incredible and like smart people, and then I felt like I was there who just slipped through the system um, and was lucky to get in there. Um, but I didn't really have any, uh, like the intelligence or the drive that was needed to be there. And for about three and a half, four years or so, the length of my time of my DPhil, that was the case. Um, and it was quite difficult. And that's actually a very prevalent, uh, that, that's a, that has a quite, that um, imposter syndrome has quite a high prevalence in Oxford. Um, not just with me, but like my wife and a lot of other people have that same, have that same sort of, uh, those, those feelings of just feeling like they're, they're not meant to be here. There is a lot of support along with the university, but I, I also, I, I, because of some, some ridiculous reasons, I didn't take it up. So the work was very difficult. It was difficult to like keep up with that, but I got through it. But also on the other side of things, I felt like I was able to socialize on a level that I just wasn't, that just isn't capable of me anywhere else in the world. Like when I was back in Tassie um, and in Texas, I would have maybe three, maybe no, probably two or three friends at most. I wouldn't, I generally wouldn't have more than three really good friends because I just didn't, I just didn't like talk to that many people and there weren't, I just felt like there weren't that many people who were interested in talking to me. And Oxford is just different. It's a place that attracts people from every continent, um, from almost, from many, many different countries. I have friends from every single continent of, of, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the world. I, I know people who speak, I don't know how many different languages um, from all different parts and, and not just from select countries within each continent. I have friends from like many different countries across each continent. It's also that like at Oxford, everyone's a little bit weird. Everyone's a little <laughs> bit, a little bit strange. <laughs> They're just a little bit out there. So the fact that I was really like very weird and very strange just made me was like fit in even more. (laughs) And it was just, it's just a weird place like that where like I just had the opportunity to socialize and to really meet. And so my circle of friends went from maybe two or three to 50 um, within a couple of months or within like over a year. And I just, I think like there's just no other place in the world that I could have that sort of connection with people. And it's just strange because I feel like for me to socialize, like everything has to, all these things have to be aligned. The planets have to be aligned. The the moon has to be in the right phase that I'm just have to be feeling right. I just have to like, I just have to be feeling like, like I'm willing to meet people, I'm willing to talk. And I, everything, all of those just have to work out on the right moment, at the right time, at the right day. And if they don't, if, if one thing is just off, then 
I just find it really difficult to talk to people. For me, it, it, it was just a really great opportunity and it allowed my social, the social side of me to really just blossom. So that's why I say that it's a very unusual time that I felt a lot of, I felt an unprecedented level of stress mm -hmm. and, um, and pressure that I haven't really, well, I have come across before, but nowhere near in the, not in the sort of frame that I had experienced it as a student at Oxford, but also I experienced a level of socializing that I just don't think I could ever find anywhere else in the world. Yeah, it's interesting that you touch on um, imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of people with dyslexia can feel, but also your mental health and well-being was not at the greatest, yet you were socialising with so many people, which is really interesting. Yeah, because, well, I mean, research uh, really is starting to highlight the um, struggles that people, adults particularly, well, throughout our lives, but um, it continues to struggle with um, depression and anxiety and poor mental health outcomes compared to those that don't have a learning disability. So it's interesting that you raise that. And when we're put into situations like university, if you haven't um, taken the support that you can get, uh, then it can be so much harder. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The university was generally quite good, but um, it was, yeah, it was just the circumstances meant that I, I went through quite a, like, high levels of anxiety and in hindsight I should have got help for that um, but stupidly I didn't and um, but now yeah so and now I, I feel much better um, and to get to this stage I feel like I've I've had to go through a lot of changes and some real uh, very difficult periods and I've put my wife through uh, those those experiences as well lesser Yes, it's hard as we put our families through it. My family's certainly been through a lot. But Lois, it must have been exciting for you to see Nicholas go to Oxford, but then it must have been hard as well knowing that he was struggling like that. It, you're absolutely right. Nicholas's father, my husband, had also <coughs> received his degree from Oxford. Oh, wow. I was aware of the level of stress that my husband went through and knowing Nicholas had this language difficulty really did concern me because everything in Oxford, I mean, yes, you do have to write a thesis and that was incredibly difficult for Nicholas. And it, when he first went there, you know, he said, everything's oral, blah, blah, blah. And I can't do this, that, and the other. And his brother says, Nicholas, take pictures of every board that they do, record the lectures. And so that's where some of the input came from to get him through this as well. That's interesting. You didn't seek help. Is it because you didn't, do you normally disclose you're dyslexic? Or is that something um, you don't talk about until we put this podcast out? <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's fine. Like I didn't really talk about it too much when, during my DPhil. Um, I, 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 I told my supervisors this is the case, but, like I didn't really seek much help in the first two years and it wasn't for a long period that I just didn't seek help um, because I don't know, I, 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 I couldn't see why, how, how people could help me or something. Yeah. And I just needed yeah. to bash away with a sledgehammer at it. <laughs> um, it's which called is grit. Not, 
yeah, yeah. I'm starting was, to love that and, word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was me for about just, you know, bash away with a, a sledgehammer and just eventually you'll get something. And I've since come to realize that it's not a very healthy approach to work. No. Um, it takes a bit more of a chisel, <laughs> I guess. And um, it was only after my defil when I really had to address that. Um, I went for a postdoc at Imperial. Um, I went to, and then I did this, I did a master's in health economics um, and uh, with the support of my wife. Like it wasn't until like well after my defil had passed that I actually was forced to address these issues and really confront them. And I think now I'm in a much better state. Um, that was that was a not not an easy period for me. I went through it and I, I came out better the other side. Yeah, we're lucky when that can happen, aren't we? <laughs> we yeah. come out the other side. So now you're working, Lois. You've written your book. Um, so in the workplace now, Nicholas, do you have strategies in place that help you day to day, or? Um, yeah, like I've, I've, um, I, I don't tend to tell people at work um, that I'm dyslexic. I feel like that's, I don't know, personally, I, I, for me, I feel like I, I don't tell them unless they absolutely have to because I feel like that's a bit, I don't know, people might think I would be making excuses or something or, and they don't really need to know. Um, I tell them like I recorded meetings I uh, no sorry, and I have told I have told my line manager, um, who I don't work with explicitly. It's just um, but she knows the employee uh, like HR manager, so they know. But like the people I work with immediately, um, I I tend not to like really tell them. Um, I have, but I have developed a series of strategies that have aided me in addressing the challenges that I face. Like recording meetings is a big, big component. That's something that really, I, I really helps me. And I've also learned to use a variety of software. The most helpful, like um, apart from recording meetings, but also um, a transcribing software, which is, is reasonably helpful. Um, I found, or uh, it, it can be, particularly in recording, like um, uh, generating meeting notes, because generate like making meeting notes for me is just it's like I don't know asking someone to climb Mount Everest. Yeah. Um, it's it's just it's just the worst thing. It takes me hours to do. Um, it's so difficult, and it yeah. And my wife, she could do it in like half an hour yeah um but like for me it takes me three or four times longer and so but i i i, I just try to avoid those sort of roles that do that lois you've ended up becoming a bit of a dyslexic advocate yes that'd be definitely. right i also became a reading specialist and when we were in lubbock i I ended up in a role where I was teaching children who failed all reading programs. And I went from school to school to school to teach these kids because I thought if we can teach Nicholas, there's no excuse for not teaching every other child. And my children ranged in age from seven till 15. 
My 15 year olds came to me with, with no words. After 10 years in school, they could not read a thing. And I taught them to read. Which is so, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. Isn't it? It's phenomenal because I was interviewing an actor from America um, about his dyslexia and he was diagnosed actually in prison. And so I heard him. Yes. Which is um, yes. Not really. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And um, it was interesting because in America, if you're not, um, you don't have a job, then you're not covered for any medically or private health. So there's yeah. a whole cohort of children that are missing out on any type of intervention or assessment, which was just, yeah. I mean, it, it happens here to an extent because we don't have know about none of our assessments are covered under Medicare here, but still, you know, our gap is not as big as America and it was quite scary yes. to, to think that that was happening. So it's amazing yes. that you're going and doing that type of work for children that might not otherwise get it. It was phenomenal and it was, it was an eye opener to me and it was really important um, for me to have the knowledge that I had and then make sure, you know, I taught every child really. And that's, that was the, that's what really led to the book. One of the components that led to the book. So is dyslexia, does that run in your family that you know of? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, it was interesting. My mother was 70 when I was teaching Nicholas in 1995 and she was watching me and she said, Lois, I needed help in school like you're giving Nicholas. Oh. And I, yeah, I went through school. I clearly remember being able to read the words. I could not comprehend. But because I could read the words, no one else cared. The fact that I got nothing right when I in the questions was irrelevant i could read the words yeah it's hard isn't it because we're pretty sure it comes from my dad and he always says he wished he'd been a surgeon or could have been a doctor and yes. you just think how many people have missed out on opportunities yes yes well I look yeah that's very true nicholas's life and see the extreme of his education you know to move continents is what transformed his life both times and allowed him to be where he is today yeah it's an amazing story and an amazing achievement it was and to get through oxford when you were struggling as well with your yes. mental health is just you know it's phenomenal you should be really proud of yourself and i hope our listeners um well, thank you yeah. can mm -hmm. see that if if you chisel away i've written it down as a quote for our podcast <laughs> if you don't use a sledgehammer but you chisel which i think is a fantastic quote because i think that's how we get through actually is if we keep just working at it bit by bit we can achieve what we set out to with the right supports like our mums yeah yeah, yeah that's true interesting, interesting to hear that your mother edits all your work for me to write my book i had to pay an editor and i met this young girl when at a writing class and she said i'll help you and we wrote and wrote and wrote because i didn't have the experience to write a book and she really worked with me to help me become the author that that produced that book. But without her, it would have you wouldn't have read the book. Yeah, we've had a few authors come on that have said the same thing. And because I'm, uh, I'm trying to write my book at the moment, and I mean I have to have external editors outside of my mum and my auntie who's now helping me because they just don't yes. have the capacity to write a book as well, Lois. I mean that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, do you have it in audio book? I'm, I put it on audio and I've done an abridged version and I hope it'll come out in the next month or two. I had oh. hoped to have 
out for Christmas, but I haven't done that yet, but I'm working on it. Fantastic. I'm just learning audio books and I tell you what, it's, I mean, I love reading. It just takes me a lot longer and I don't have much time with uni at the moment, but audio books just, they're amazing. We have a whole chapter in my book. On <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to um, say to our listeners? I think believe in yourself and search for help. It's very difficult to do this alone. Find role models, find others who've been there and certainly get as much help as you can. You need people who believe in you and believe you can learn to read and you can achieve at the highest levels. Uh, yeah, I'd mostly, um, yeah, just, just that pretty much, um, that you've got to find out what you're good at. Um, you've got to find out what you like. And you've got to surround yourself with people who support you. Yes. I have had a lot, I fully admit that I've had a lot of support throughout my life. Um, first with my mum, who I don't think any, like any of my achievements would have happened without her. It's, that's important to recognise. And like also the teachers that I've had since then, I've had a series of <clears throat> very influential teachers at every stage of my life. And I remember them. Yeah, they were like in high school, um, in, in junior high school in the US with my, some, one of my science teachers. Um, and I had a math You can teacher. say her name. You can say her name. <laughs> uh, I think her name now is Mrs. Lovering, but her name used to, yeah, Mrs. Lovering, that's right. She was a science teacher in year seven. She was, uh, I think she saw me for who I am. I had a math teacher, Mrs. Bombor in high school, who was very influential she really knew what like um like i think she saw me and like the math the ability of mathematics that i had um <clears throat> and but i went to university like i had a university professor who was just so engaging like he just loved math so much you could be someone who has hated math your whole life and you could be in one lecture of his and you'd be loving it um, That's Professor Larry Forbes. <laughs> I wish I'd had a maths teacher like that. <laughs> yeah, and I just sort of took the tools and mentality that I had developed throughout my life up to that point, which was to just uh, bash through things with a sledgehammer. And I didn't really, um, and as a result, my mental health just took a nosedive. I didn't really seek help, and that was not good. So, I, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's absolutely vital to, to surround yourself with people who support you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure talking to you both and learning about your um, story. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. This has just been wonderful. Lovely. Wonderful. Thank you so to much. To find out more about Nicholas and Lois's story, including where to purchase Lois's book, Reversed, a memoir, head to the Dear Dyslexic website. If you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we do at the Foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there is anything you have heard today that was distressing, please call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. If there is a topic you would like discussed on the show, please email us, admin at dyslexic.com. Thanks for joining us today. 
and bye for now. Yeah.